0: Well, as you likely heard this past week, the Liberals planning a promise of certain weapons, semi-automatic so-called assault rifles, also talking about a buyback program in some areas and giving more powers to municipalities and local governments when it comes to handguns and whether or not there is an appetite to ban handguns. Some calling this a way to try and change the channel from the blackface-brownface scandal. But certainly it is stirring up a lot of debate and a lot of conversation about gun laws in this country. And joining me on the line to talk a bit more about this is A.J. Somerset. He's the author of Arms, the Culture and Credo of the Gun. A.J., thank you so much for being with us this morning.
1: Thanks for inviting me.
0: Uh, What's your first response or your first reaction to uh, what uh, the Liberals, uh, what the campaign promise was about uh, gun changes and gun laws, should they be reelected?
1: Well, I think that you know, people will will say it's just a way of changing the channel on their recent scandals. But um, I think that uh, you could see this coming a long way off. As far back as 2017, the Conservatives really have been painting themselves into a corner on guns uh, by aligning themselves very closely with our gun lobby. So this was a very obvious move uh, for the Liberals to make.
0: Uh, and even, I mean, the timing of it, I'm sure, was uh, there was a reason why they chose that day. It might not have been, been uh, the, the day that they had been planning on saying this. But as far as changing the channel goes, I think, uh, I know you've written about saying to the cynic it would look like that. I don't think you need to be too cynical to make that connection.
1: No, you don't need to be too cynical. I mean, they the, uh, obviously would want to make a big policy announcement, so they chose this one.
0: Uh, let's talk about the actual announcement itself, uh, because people get really fixated on uh, the AR-15. Uh, it's uh, the gun we see in movies. It's the scary-looking weapon. It's certainly not the most powerful uh, weapon out there. Why is it? Do you think is is that because is that why uh, the government would focus on this? And and does it help? Does it make people feel better that the government says it is going to do something and ban a weapon like that?
1: Uh, I don't think it helps a great deal because the, uh, you know, they made the announcement uh, on the Danforth, um, and of course, assault weapons have nothing to do with what happened on the Danforth and nothing to do with uh, the recent spate of gang violence in Canada. And what they're doing is they're appealing to people's. Uh, fear of mass shootings that we see in the United States a lot and occasionally in Canada, but it's quite a rare event. and that's why they mentioned the AR15 and that's also why they have used thoughts and prayers um, as a, a little uh, as part of their slogan. Um, uh, they have referred several times to thoughts and prayers, which of course is another very American thing. So they're looking at that fear of mass shootings um, when with this proposed ban.
0: And do you think it would actually do anything? Because to me, this almost looks as though once again, lawmakers are going after people in Canada who take a course, who are legal permit holders, who are legal gun owners, who are law abiding citizens, not the people who are the problem.
1: Well, will it do anything? Great question. Part of the problem there is uh, they haven't really defined what they're going to call an assault weapon and what they're going to ban. They say it's going to be about 250,000 guns. Well, we know that there is about uh, seventy five, eighty thousand 80,000 AR-15s in the country. That's the AR-15 alone makes up one-third of that number. Um, We also know that in 2012, there were 1.6 million uh, registered semi-automatic rifles. Probably about half of those are 22s and and wouldn't be banned, but that's still a huge difference between 250,000 and that number. And, of course, that number has been growing uh, massively um, in the past few years. has been a a huge increase in sales of uh, semi-automatic rifles. So it's not clear when they haven't defined what they're going to ban, and they seem to be banning only a subset, whether it's really going to be a significant change um, in our regulations to begin with. And then on top of that, there's also the, the, the reality that the ban that they're proposing has nothing to do with the existing crime problem. It's not being done with um, so-called assault rifles. It's being done primarily with handguns. So the only place that it would make a difference um, presuming that the ban is is defining the class effectively, would be in reducing the risk of mass shootings and, and the number of casualties in mass shootings. There's some support for the idea that it could reduce that, but um, if the class isn't defined effectively, if they're not banning, uh, they're not really banning the whole class of guns. Just you know, a few named uh, firearms like the AR fifteen, then they aren't really reducing that risk. So we really need the details, and we don't have them.
0: And and it's also too. I I would imagine the question of a ban, whether or not a ban done a ban works. I mean, I'm thinking back, and I'm going off memory, but it seems to me the Columbine shooting in the United States happened with AR-15s while there was an AR-15 ban in the United States.
1: Well, it didn't happen with AR-15s, but it did happen during the assault weapons uh, ban in the United States. So, you know, the assault weapons ban in the United States was not did not prevent all mass shootings for sure. There's um, I think there's been some support for the idea that um, an assault weapons ban could reduce the number of mass shooting casualties, if not necessarily the number of mass shootings themselves, that you'd reduce the casualty count. But there's a lot of conflict in the research on this. There's, you know, other conflicting research says, well, no effect at all. So it's not really certain that it would produce that effect.
0: Uh, You mentioned handguns as well. And one of uh, the uh, part of the announcement was also giving municipalities more autonomy to restrict or ban handguns. What do you make of that? Because to me, that makes it seem like people who are right now legal. Owners of handguns, say living in the city of Vancouver, could suddenly find themselves holding something. Are they supposed to, to, to buy it, to give it to a buyback? They're suddenly, they're not allowed to have this and somebody living in a neighboring municipality might be allowed?
1: Yeah, this one is a, a bit strange. One thing that I noted in, in the announcement was that in the announcement, uh, Justin Trudeau consistently used the word restrict with respect to handguns. And that's very poll-driven. There's not the support for banning handguns in the polls that there is uh, in banning assault rifles. So they lean away from using the word ban, although, in fact, um, their proposal would allow bans. And it seems that th- what they want to do is to enable municipalities to sort of have a range of options where they could uh, apply storage rules, such as uh, central storage, which is a pretty questionable idea in my view, Um, or they could go with an outright ban. So somebody living in Vancouver who legally owns a handgun then finds the municipality has banned his handgun. There's no provision you know, in what's been discussed so far. There's no provision for a buyback there. If there was a buyback, it would be a municipal responsibility. So all that gets downloaded onto the municipality. So for the person living in Vancouver who owns a handgun, then what do you do? Do you move to another municipality or do you just give up the, you know, several guns that are worth a thousand bucks a pop because of uh, the decision of municipal politicians? So it's it's a really, to me, it's a really uh, difficult part of the proposal because there's no details as to what restrict means and what the range of options are that might be given to municipalities. And really what it does is it creates an opportunity, I suppose, to have another fight down the road at the municipal level.
0: Well, and I would imagine that's going to lead, if, if that was to happen, you're going to have court challenges, you're going to have, uh, you, and I mean, the, the one thing that strikes me in that... You're picking at the people who aren't the problem. If you're talking about the restricted gun owner in Vancouver who, again, has taken the course, who goes through a criminal record check every single day, who is a law-abiding citizen, that person's not your, your problem. That person's not your gangster who's out there uh, involved in brazen shootings in daylight. It does nothing to solve the issue of crime, which is what I'm assuming people are asking for.
1: Yeah, that's true. And that's to me is one of the problems with with this announcement in that they, they make the announcement on the Danforth. They try to connect their proposals to um, the the sort of wave of, of uh, gang crime that we've had. But the problem is that none of the proposals that they're making are actually going to directly address gun, uh, gang crime, uh, a municipal ban. Um, within the boundaries of Toronto or Vancouver is not going to affect gang crime in those cities because the gangs are able to obtain their weapons from outside those places. And, you know, in, uh, in uh, Toronto, I forget the year recently, but there were 61 handguns uh, seized that had come from Canadian sources and 58 of those had come from outside Toronto. So banning handguns within Toronto would not really have affected anything there. So municipal bans are just not good measures in general. We've seen that in in the United States. And what they're doing really is they're throwing a sop to uh, John Tory and the Montreal City Council and so on who have demanded these bans rather than taking uh, what might be a really effective action um, on gangs, which would be reforming drug policy and so on. Um, Instead, they're focusing on the guns and they're they're pandering to the demands of municipal politicians.
0: Right, which will uh, as we as you said or as it it's not going to make any difference because the gangsters and criminals aren't following the current laws we have anyway.
1: Well, exactly. Uh, the the thing with with any kind of gun control is what it achieves as far as those gangs and those illegal users is it increases their costs. Um, So we have a system in place that has successfully done that. There's lots of support to show that, yes, we've increased their costs. We've made it more difficult, more hazardous, and more expensive for them to get guns. But it doesn't prevent them from getting guns. So we need to acknowledge that they get guns for a reason. um, And that if you're in the drug business, it's a tool of the trade. So what we need to address is the drug business itself. And we need to make the drug business less lucrative so that the, uh, the demand for violence, essentially, is addressed. We've been focusing on the supply of guns, and we really need to focus on the demand for guns.
0: All right. We will leave it there. AJ Somerset, thank you so much for joining us and talking about this. I appreciate your time today. Right. Thank you. To Burinder former Surrey City Councillor. She also ran for mayor, uh, now an entrepreneur. You have seen Burinder in the news many, many times, and she joins us on the line now. Thank you so much for taking some time with us this morning. Oh, thank you for having me. And I know you've been asked about this before, and certainly uh, it is a, as a conversation that's not going anywhere, nor should it. Uh, your response, though, and, and your response to the responses that we've been seeing to uh, Justin Trudeau and the various photos that have now emerged showing him uh, dressed up in either brown face or black face. Yeah, no, my original reaction was uh, I'm a person
2: of colour. Uh, to be very candid, I my immediate reaction was not that his intention was to be racist. You know, it was a, it was a party. He was in costume. He's a drama teacher. He's in his in his twenties. Okay, almost thirty. Um, my concern more was that we've taken this incident uh, to create some good dialogue, but nobody's come up with any solution. You know, there's lots of conversations around what's going on in the world um, and how much we do need to tackle a plague in our society, which is racism. But I think the word racism uh, should only be used very seriously, and it actually concerns me when it's sort of uh, slapped around in, in a way that takes away the significance of the seriousness of what it is in our society
0: right because i think one of the the one of the mo- more common threads coming from this is is it's not to suggest that oh we now know Justin Trudeau is racist i don't think anybody who knows him would say that he's racist yeah. but what's more concerning is he has put himself out there as this champion for multiculturalism and this champion for everybody uh, but he's he his past in doing that it calls that into question
2: well what i would say there is i think you know um He's a human, we're all human. I don't know anybody who hasn't done something way back in the day that they probably wouldn't do now. And then you have to look at the rest of his actions and his policies. He, um, for sure, I think is a big lesson for the Liberal Party uh, to look at how they have been doing a lot of uh, uh, finger pointing and putting, uh, calling out other people for behaviors in the past, not, not. Um, value-based policy decisions. I absolutely think every politician needs to be called out on a position they've taken on a policy or a policy that they're either willing to support or not support. But I'm talking about things people may have done in their personal life. So I I, I think he did sort of set the bar really high and now is, you know, being judged by that bar. But again, from the people I talk to in my life, um, um, you know, they all say that, yeah, in poor taste, was this racist, Should we be still talking about it? Probably no. Let's get on with coming up with some good solutions and get on to the issues that are really affecting us as Canadians.
0: Right. And, and and I hear that too. And certainly uh, people have been calling on that. But d- do you find it difficult that you can't just let it go? It's not, like you said, there's an opportunity here. Yeah. And and Calgary's mayor wrote a, a wonderful piece about this, that there's this opportunity here to have that bigger conversation. And, and yes, let, let go any allegations that, oh, this shows that Justin Trudeau is racist. That's not, I think that's almost a distraction because I think we've, we've, we've realized that's not the case, but what is the, the bigger issue here? And and what is the conversation that we need to be having?
2: And that's the excellent point, is that what is the conversation we need to be having? And, and that's where I am concerned. I mean, uh, Mayor Nenshi's piece is really good. Uh, Jack Dishman, who uh, is a reporter, wrote a really great piece in the Toronto Star that I just read this morning. I think the tone is very similar in that um, people recognize that, um, you know, we, we talk in society now about white privilege and, and what people should or should not understand based on their experience and context. But I'm also of the very strong view that we need to be working in a way that's bringing people together. I don't like it when people who are progressive and supportive in my life feel like they're being shamed because of the colour of their skin. And that sometimes happens both ways. I'm not saying there isn't institutional racism and there isn't... Um, biases against people of color more than there is of people who are white but at the same time um, most of the people in my life um, regardless of what color they are are really working towards a better and just society and we need to be making sure that we're bringing people along and not penalizing people for past mistakes Uh, definitely once they've acknowledged not only the mistake but the white privilege So I think by carrying it too far, you then make people retreat into their own shell because they're afraid to say anything to anybody.
0: And that's a huge issue. I, I'm glad you brought that up. And when we talk about that, one of the, the images as well that was getting um, a lot of, uh, sparking a lot of conversation was the image of the press gallery traveling with Justin Trudeau. And it was a picture, and I think it was even taken before the photos emerged, but it was a picture of the journalists and reporters on the plane, and everybody in the photo was white. That image probably wouldn't have sparked any conversation had we not been talking about the photos that came to light. Do you think that's something that should be addressed or that's something that we need to be aware of, at least uh, that, that that the makeup of the press gallery and not just the press gallery, I would imagine any workplace. Well, yeah. And
2: so, you know, um, you know, I'm 50 years old and I still go into many rooms where I'm the only visible minority person. Um, And, you know, that is something I think that this conversation can really get people to look around at. It's not only an issue of just being the only person of colour sometimes, it's still you're the only woman sometimes. So I think that, you know, I'm not one for quota systems or or making it, you know, forcing this, but what it is is about broadening the reach when we're uh, looking at positions or including who should be at the table. Uh, there are many, many qualified people with lots of experience who just aren't a part of the same networks who don't get to those tables. So I think, yeah, the picture of the journalists, uh, the picture of boardroom tables, I think we still have a lot of work to do, both for women and for people of colour, and that is what I'm hoping that this dialogue would lead to is all of the parties now saying listen we recognize this and now we all need to do better so let's talk about some policy for voters to consider before they vote this has turned into such a big thing i've heard people say you know what see politics is just so ridiculous and
0: dirty we're not even voting mm-hmm. which causes me a lot of concern uh, the the, uh, the liberal leader uh, Justin Trudeau when in his second apology I think a lot of people took issue with the fact that he used his his white privilege and growing up in a rich family almost as an out, saying that it created a huge blind spot for him. What do you make of that? I think he's being honest.
2: I think he is being very honest. When I look at my uh, mom and dad who, you know, who, who brought us to Kamloops and who had very strong perspectives of South Asian, traditional South Asian parents, how they viewed the world is very rightful in their mind because they didn't have a different experience. Just like I can't fault them for the way I was raised much differently than a non-South Asian woman in Canada, I I agree that people who grew up with different opportunities who were white wouldn't have the experience or the exposure to actually understand. Um, I applaud all the conversations we have and people are now learning and now we're all learning to take a step back and put ourselves in somebody else's shoes but come on, Jill, that's human nature. Uh, you can't villainize somebody for that. Uh, if, in fact, his policies had been regressive and he hadn't attempted to be more inclusive of people of color and um, women, even in appointing his cabinet and other things, I think this whole conversation around the picture would be, should be different. But that's not the case.
0: Right. Although the the excuse or the reason is 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 being naive, because it's been it's been quite documented and clear that he was the only one dressed that way at that that one particular party. People knew in two thousand one that was not an acceptable thing to do.
2: Well, and see, this is this is another thing. When uh, again, when I saw the picture, I was having a conversation with a friend of mine who's she was quite appalled. But she's a she was a history major. She uh, understood. Uh, the significance, uh, the negativity around blackface. For me, literally, it was a drama teacher in a high school contest. And then that speaks to, again, my perspective and experience versus hers. So I don't, wouldn't say it's naive for him to uh, have been honest about his white privilege. I think it was honest. I think it would be different if it were now or two years ago. I do believe in the early 2000s was still a little bit of a different time than we're in now.
0: All right. We're, we'll have to leave it there. We're out of time. But, Brinder Rosode, always great to talk to you. Thank you so much. Oh, thank you. Well, the mayor of Victoria is currently at the UN talking climate change and looking at ways cities around the world can do their part. Lisa Helps joins me on the line to talk a bit more about this. Good morning to you. Thanks for being here. You're so welcome. Uh, so walk us through first uh, the, the reason for going and, and kind of what you've been doing at this conference uh, at the United Nations.
3: Well, the initial invitation came to me from the UN Undersecretary-General uh, earlier in the summer. And she somehow had noticed uh, Victoria's urban forest master plan and the, the recent investments we've made in our budget to trees. And so I was originally invited to participate uh, in the launch of the Trees in Cities Challenge, which happened yesterday. So I said yes to that. It's not every day you get invited to the United Nations Uh, But since then the program uh, was developed a little bit more and I actually had a couple of opportunities yesterday to speak to delegates uh, here at the United Nations about some of the work happening in Victoria and some of the things... I think are necessary for cities to continue to take climate action.
0: Uh, So starting with the trees because from what I understand too, so Victoria you've agreed to uh, is it 5,000 trees or to plant 5,000 more trees?
3: 5,000 trees between now and December 2020. It it seems like such a small number compared to cities that are planting a million trees but the square area of Victoria is only 20 square kilometers. So I think 5,000 is low but it seemed like a reasonable pledge to make. Uh, We'll start with that and see uh, with uh, working with our residents, if we can double that number in the year. That would be my, my actual goal. Right, because would
0: that be much different than, say, what you had been planning anyway or a hope to, to have more trees planted?
3: Uh, absolutely. So every year the city plants uh, between 200 or 300 trees on public property. So our commitment is that we're going to plant uh, 500 trees and support residents in the planting of 45 more 100 trees on public property. So it's a substantial increase.
0: All right. So that uh, was a promise made. And and am I right in saying that uh, you were the first? Was it the first Canadian city to sign on to this or have other cities signed on to this challenge as well? I think
3: what the Under Secretary general did is look for leaders uh, in various countries to join her in the pledge yesterday. Uh, and, uh, again, it's, it's an honour. I'm not quite sure why Victoria was chosen. Although we have uh, made significant investments in trees, uh, particularly in the last budget year, and our urban forest master plan is quite robust. So that somehow caught their attention. Yes, we're the first Canadian city, but I think the Undersecretary General's hope is that uh, mayors from around the world will pledge uh, many, many, many trees. And then her goal at the end of 2020 is, I think, to say the UN's Trees and Cities Challenge stimulated the planting of 20 million or 40 million trees. I'm not sure what her goal is. So, yes, we're the first Canadian city to sign on, uh, and I hope that uh, others will join us.
0: All right. Uh, Has there been any discussion of plastic bags, uh, given Victoria was in the news as far as trying to bring in that ban and then uh, things not quite working out uh, as planned?
3: Uh, Well, I certainly raised it yesterday uh, again in a panel speaking to about 500 delegates about the need for local governments to have both more authority and more resources to combat climate change. Um, so it came up there. Interesting, uh, the governor of Papua New Guinea also brought up plastic bags. You know, he's like, he's, you know, all this plastic waste is now in our small, uh, you know, uh, developing country, and, and we don't have the capacity to recycle. So what are we supposed to do? So, yeah, plastic waste is, is definitely um, on the agenda. Related and, and interestingly, what the, the thrust of all of the sessions that I've been asked to participate in and, and that I'll be doing so again today is really there's a shift in the international Um, arena and a real sense that cities and and local governments have a real role to play in combating climate change. And that's that's new. That's new for the UN.
0: Hmm. And when we talk about these things and not to to, to say that that one is not uh, worth more than the other, obviously, all every change is a good thing, whether it's uh, considered a small change or a big change. But when we're talking about things like banning plastic bags and planting more trees, How do you kind of say that we're doing something when at the same time, Victoria is welcoming a number, a record number of cruise ship passengers? And we know that the cruise ship industry is one of the biggest polluters.
3: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, We've had uh, discussions with the cruise industry recently, and I will be bringing a motion to council very soon. Uh, Basically, if they want to have the social license to continue to operate in Victoria, we're going to need shore power while they're in port.
0: And do you think that's a big enough step to offset the amount of pollution and the emissions created by that industry?
3: Um, My understanding is the emissions create about 1% of all uh, industry from marine traffic. So if we really want to talk about the the shipping industry, we need to talk about uh, all of the products that are coming to us from China and various places by boat into the port of Vancouver and elsewhere. Uh, That's the 99% of marine related emissions come from those sources. So we do have to have a very big conversation as a global community about consumption patterns for sure.
0: And how, how do you go about having that conversation? Because that's always brought up as well when we see people protesting or see people raising the issue of climate change. But oftentimes we're wearing clothes that was brought in from China. We're wearing clothes that was brought in on these huge ships, like you said, that are the main sources of the pollution. How do you have that conversation and actually make it go to a place where we have real change?
3: It's it, that's a, a really good question and I don't know the answer um, in, in its entirety. Uh, one of the things that the city is working on is a circular economy strategy and I know that Vancouver is working, I think, on something similar. So, we, you know, yes, we can reduce our emissions through buildings and transportation and waste. We, we can do all of those things that are, you know, within more of our control, but the real conversations do have to come from, you know, what are our consumption patterns and we need to make some significant shifts. So I think it, it, we... we we're starting to see that you know there's obviously in both Vancouver and Victoria push towards local, uh, local consumption, local food, uh, local manufacturing. Um, 3D printing I think will play a huge role. Uh, you know you can manufacture a tiny house with a 3D printer, so parts don't necessarily need to be shipped from China um, and other places in the world. So it is very very complicated, uh, but that's where individual choice comes in. Uh, certainly, um, climate action can't be solved by individual choice. There are systemic problems. Um, But for those of us who have the wherewithal to make different choices about how we consume, uh, that's up to each of us to do at the same time as those of us in elected office are having the tougher conversations on a larger scale.
0: And I suppose at the UN, too, this is the perfect platform to have those conversations. And you mentioned uh, speaking w- with Papua New Guinea, because that's one of the things. And if, if you travel at all, uh, going to countries, uh, I was in Vietnam in April, and I was struck just by the sheer amount of plastic everywhere along the shores uh, in uh, in uh, Halong Bay, which is a, a protected site, and it is everywhere. But at the same time, you have to be careful in that it's not as though you can go to different countries and say, oh, well, you should be doing what we're doing. We don't throw our plastic into the ocean ocean you shouldn't be doing that but at the same time it's a huge source of the pollution and so I'm glad you mentioned that there's at least that conversation being had in that that they don't have uh, many countries don't have a way of dealing with this
3: no exactly and and we were the ones like the, you know the, the north or the west we were the ones who introduced plastic to those places i mean yes there we're willing consumers in the same way the 1950s in the 1950s as plastics we're rolling out, you know, here in the in the north uh, and the west parts of the world. We also wanted to consume them. You know, I, I was part of a fascinating conversation yesterday. One of those meetings that happen after the meetings. So we, I went for a drink actually with the governor of the Papua New, uh, New Guinea uh, and his uh, assistant, as well as former mayor Gregor Robertson, uh, a councillor from um, Nelson Rick Lautenberg, uh, and uh, the executive director of a fantastic organization called cities for forests and what they do is match again you know the consumption of cities devastates forests around the world and particularly old growth forests he gave some statistic about the amount of forests that new york city consumes in one year and it was astronomical so not only is it you know, fine to have these conversations but we were talking about what kind of partnership could there be between potentially victoria vancouver um and uh Nelson uh, and uh, Papua New Guinea, or, or some cities there, to 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 do some reforestation projects or, or forestation projects, which are going to have much more impact there than they would here. Planting a tree in Papua New Guinea uh, in in the um, rainforest uh, has has significant impact. So uh, this is the benefit of actually being at this summit, having these kinds of global conversations.
0: Well, we'll leave it there and let you get back to it. I know it's another busy day, but thank you so much for taking a few moments with us today. I really appreciate it. You're so welcome. All right. Well, this next story could have been a whole lot worse. Uh, Thankfully, uh, Greg Wright, who we will bring on the phone uh, lines in just a moment, is okay. He was involved in a car crash earlier this month in Delta, and he was okay, even though the car flipped several times. But his companion, his dog Rocky, was injured in the crash. So we're going to be talking uh, to both Greg and a member of the uh, Richmond Animal Protection Society. But Greg, let's bring you in on this first uh, and, and talk a little bit about what happened. Thank you so much for taking some time with us. Good morning, Joe. Good morning. Uh, so, how are you? Are you okay at this point?
4: I've got bruises. Um, it's, I am okay compared to the dog.
0: And what happened exactly? Because so without getting into all of the details sure. of your story, you were evicted a few years ago. Uh, found yourself without proper housing, uh, and you and Rocky mm-hmm. were you you were living in the vehicle.
4: We were actually living in a, in a motor home. Okay, that's less than ideal to live in. But I wasn't willing to give the dog up. Um, He's my everything. So um, we ended up living on the dike in Richmond for two years until a gentleman asked if I needed a safe place to live. So he let me park his RV in in his driveway for the past two years.
0: And and when this happened on I think it was September 11th. So Rocky was injured. How is he now?
4: Rocky isn't walking he has no feeling in the back in his back legs he's been going into an iceberg chamber um they've been very diligent to take inflammation down in the spine and um we're really really trying hard to get an mri for him right now to see exactly what's going on
0: and, and before we bring in, we're going to talk to I.L. Lickman, who's with uh, RAPS, who's with the Richmond Animal uh, Protection mm-hmm. Society. Uh, Greg, walk us through a bit. And again, I don't, I don't want you to have to go through your, your entire life history, but how did you mm-hmm. end up being in the position, here you are, a, a veteran with the Coast Guard, being in a position mm-hmm. uh, where you were, you were living, uh, and then thankfully someone let you park the motor home, but as you said, not ideal. How did you end up in that position?
5: Yeah, Jill,
4: it's, uh, I, I assume you're asking, um, how did I end up in the position in living in an RV with my support dog?
0: Right, yeah.
4: Yeah, it's, uh, like you said earlier, I was evicted and um, I could not find any accommodations for Rocky and I. Um, hopefully the Ministry of Housing and Social Development is going to get uh, wind of this, because there is absolutely nothing for people in need that have animals. Uh, You cannot, no one will look at me to rent a place. I've been looking for almost four years now, um, and there's nothing that's affordable for a person on disability with a support dog.
0: And and Rocky's more than just, exactly, he's not, uh, not to say just, but anybody that has dogs know they're part of the family. He's an essential part of your family.
4: 100% he is. 100% he is. He's, um, uh, the purpose of me finding him, and us being together is so he can help me through my hard times. Um, he's done his job more than, than I could expect from anyone or anything. Um, and I owe it to him to, to get him home.
0: Um, Ayal Lickman is on the phone with us as well with the, uh, the Richmond Animal Hospital. Um, Ayal, thank you so much for doing this and joining us also. Where do things stand as far as treatment for Rocky.
6: Hi, uh, good to be with you. Um, Well, where it stands right now is we're treating him to the best of our ability. We're a a fully equipped hospital, but there's only a few specialty hospitals with diagnostic uh, machinery like an MRI. And so we're fundraising right now to get that MRI so that we know how to take the next steps with Rocky if he needs uh, surgery. Under our digital x-rays that uh, we've taken, we don't see Um, anything, but that's not, uh, um, that's not final. Of course, uh, we need a deeper dive into what he's doing. But um, one of the things that we do have that uh, assists with uh, inflammation is we have Canada's only animal hyperbaric chamber, which is uh, an oxygen chamber, which helps reduce inflammation around uh, around the spine. And we're hoping that maybe that will help. It's not definitive, but uh, we're putting uh, Rocky into that every single day. And we're fortunate because we're a charity hospital that this uh, very, very expensive machinery was donated uh, to us. And that's the beauty of being a, a nonprofit charity hospital. So you get a lot of best equipment donated to you in order to assist the public.
0: And has he shown signs of improvement at all at this point?
6: So, yes, uh, especially around uh, the rib cages and so forth. Now, I'm not a doctor. I'm the CEO of the Regional Animal Protection Society. But um, basically, he's developing everywhere else and and coming around uh, beautifully. um, And his spirits are are much better. And now it's just a function full force to see if we can uh, help him out.
0: And what kind of a bill are we looking at as far as a treatment bill for Rocky?
6: It's going to be around uh, $20,000 in total um, for all of the uh, care that he's uh, being given. And he's right now 24-7 at the Raps Animal Hospital. So um, he's getting uh, the best uh, care possible.
0: All right. And Greg, that must, yeah. that must help you in that knowing uh, that your companion, your support dog is getting the best help uh, that Rocky can. But that's also going to be a bit daunting because that's a pretty big bill.
4: Uh, yes, it is. I, I'm so glad he's helping me with this. Um, their staff is absolutely amazing. The, the amount of attention Rocky's getting and help he's getting, just it put me back on my heels yesterday when I realized how, how much they're helping me.
0: what's the what do you need immediately then as far as people can donate to 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 this if they would like to help with the bills but there are so many different parts to this what what do you need from people right now
6: i I
4: need their support i need them to reach out oh that's a good question jill Uh, i need housing I need a safe place for Rocky. Sorry.
0: No, that's okay. I was going to say, obviously, I mean, your story isn't isn't unique. Unfortunately, I, I'm mm-hmm. guessing there are a lot of people that are in a similar situation. Where do you think you would be had had that man that that saw you on the dike that day not offered you uh, the the opportunity to live in a motorhome?
4: Um, that's a long, deep road there. Um. I most likely wouldn't be around today. Yeah, I suffer from post traumatic stress disorder. I've got severe depression and anxiety. And um, I've been struggling for several years. Trying to keep a smile on my
0: face. Which shows, like, just one, even that one act clearly has made a huge difference but as you said it's not ideal you guys and then with the setback of the car crash uh, it just uh, it's going to take a, a little bit more
4: yeah that's right Joe. my rv leaks when it rains um i have no way to heat food it's um that's mm. something i really need help with
0: um, Ayel, I'll bring you back in too. Ayal, yeah. what can people do if someone's hearing this and they want to help out with Rocky's treatment or learn more about this? Is there a number or website that they can go to?
6: So they can go to uh, com um, and donate there. Um, we are also an organization that uh, we're about the people and their animals. So we're not just helping out Rocky. We're trying to help out Greg as well. And to us, that's really, really important. So we're doing a whole bunch of uh, different things. And Greg has really inspired us that we've now made um, arrangements with the Salvation Army Homeless Center in Richmond, where it's one of the few uh, homeless centers that allows uh, people to bring in their animals. It's for men. Um, So we're going to be treating uh, at no cost uh, any of the animals uh for the people that want to go into that homeless center so that uh so that they can have their support animals uh with them and greg really inspired us uh, to do this so um but in regards to helping greg we're going to see what we can do and reach out to get him hopefully eventually somewhere to live so we're going to support him that way we're going to continue to support rocky even after he goes back uh, to greg um, and we're just going to reach out uh, through all of our channels to help Greg in every way that we can. And one of the ways is how can we stop the, the water leaking into his trailer, that he's uh, the van that he's living out of. So right. um, there's a whole bunch of different things that we're going to assist because it's more than... You have to take care of the people in order to take care of the animals.
0: Absolutely. All right. I hate to cut you off, but we are right out of time. So thank you to both of you. And if people contact me here, I will pass them on to you as well. That is I.L. Lickman with RAPS, Greg Wright, uh, who is uh, Rocky's owner. The federal leaders on the campaign trails, very busy today. We had an announcement about veterans benefits from Andrew Scheer just a few moments ago, earlier today, and uh, the other leaders on the campaign trail as well with more promised and Announcements throughout the day. Let's bring in Keith Baldry, Global BC Chief Political Reporter, to talk a little bit more about the election, the week in review. Good morning to you. Good morning, Joe uh, Again, the leaders back on the trail today. Uh, let's look at the week in review. Obviously, uh, the photos and the video of the Liberal leader uh, dominating much of the discussion.
5: Yes, and not surprisingly. I mean, these were shocking for, I think... Pretty well, everyone, even though it took place many years ago, <clears throat> to have something like this surface in a campaign in this matter is obviously a jarring uh, uh, episode for for everyone. And uh, Trudeau, of course, now earnestly uh, and somewhat desperately trying to change the channel on Friday, talking about uh, gun control and banning assault weapons. And he's going to have to, I think, step it up to get people's minds off that uh, those, those episodes of blackface. And brownface uh, that dominated uh, the campaign all the, for most of last week,
0: and also hope uh, that there isn't more to come.
5: That's the big thing. There are rumors circulating that there is more to come. The La Le- Presse, the newspaper in Montreal, is uh, is circulating rumors that they there's more to come. Uh, we don't know if that's the case. If it is the case, then this could just completely uh, cause his campaign to collapse. If he's all he's doing is is responding to. In embarrassing incidents, even though maybe from his early past, uh, that's going to derail his his overall message and make it harder to uh, contrast himself in any favorable ways with his opponents, notably Conservative leader Andrew Scheer. Having said that, though, Jill, I mean, elections are about choices. And if you're not prepared to back, if you're, if you're a Trudeau backer, and these things continue to circulate, what are you going to do? Are you going to vote for Andrew Scheer, which seems to be the political and polar opposite of the Trudeau uh, philosophy, or are you going to vote for someone like Jagmeet Singh or even Elizabeth May of the Green Party? I mean, if, if, if more stuff surfaces about Trudeau, I wonder whether or not this is going to elevate the support for the so-called third-place parties, which is the NDP and the Greens.
0: Uh, Which is somewhat to to a lesser extent, uh, certainly not with the controversy of this level, but it's kind of what we saw in uh, the last BC election, when we saw such a shift to to different parties or or the, the Liberal voters shifting over, and I think even to a surprise to a lot of those voters.
5: It was uh, in 2017 you know seventeen percent of the electorate voted for the Green Party in in British Columbia up from uh, something like eight percent in the previous election, so they more than doubled their vote. A lot of that was considered to be a protest vote against Christy Clark and, and the BC liberals so uh, again' I, it's, pollsters suggest that there is uh, an element of the liberal vote that would go conservative that they w- really don't mind, but I think that the differences between the liberals and the conservatives now have become much more profound. Uh, this election than they have been in previous elections. I think the, there's a more of a polarization between the two parties. So it's harder to see uh, liberals going to Trudeau in a way that perhaps in, in the 90s, you know, when Krejci and Paul Martin were the the leaders of the, of the liberals, you, know, you can see them getting red Tory support. Uh, or, uh, again, the more, even Mulroney getting getting liberal soft uh, support. And I just don't see the difference in, between Scheer and Trudeau now to see, seem to be so ideological and profound that I don't see a lot of commonality there, so, which means perhaps Jugmate Single, Elizabeth may become the default parties, you know, none of the above, and vote for one of the... T- two parties that are never given a chance to form government but could very well now be in a position of deciding which party is going to form the next government because they may hold the balance of power.
0: Mm, interesting. Uh, what about the debates? And obviously uh, the debates coming up uh, where we have, we're have we going to have the leaders all in the same room. Uh, is there a concern do you think? Because it's not as though uh, Andrew Scheer is going to let the controversy go surrounding Justin Trudeau. Is there a concern that we're going to see these debates kind of taken over? That takes them over rather than people are tuning in perhaps to get more information on where the leaders stand on various issues, be it housing, be it healthcare, uh, whatever your top issue is, but instead it's going to continue this focus?
5: No, I don't think the blackface incidents are going to be the focus of of the debate. Uh, October 7th, it'll be aired on Global. Um, It's going to be, structurally, it's not the most sound debate. I mean, you're going to have five leaders, because Maxine Bernier is on there now. Also have five... panelists, uh, which also makes it a little awkward. So, I think the debate, in many ways, is the first time a lot of people are going to be tuning in to this uh, election campaign, although I think the blackface incident has got enormous attention. But in some ways, the election is just getting going. We've got a month to go before we vote. The, the debate is the time when most people really tune in for the first time, but it's not going to be like every segment's going to be about the blackface incidents. There will be segments on housing, on affordability, on climate change, and she's hardly able to to suddenly start talking about blackface when he 's trying to address climate change arguments, so i, I don 't think that 's going to be a dominant uh, focus of, of the debate. I think other issues will uh, will emerge, and I think climate change, I think affordability, those types of things are going to get the predominant uh, amount of attention from from the candidates and from the panelists.
0: And like you said, October 7th, too. And if uh, that's taught us anything, who knows what will have happened yeah. by the time October 7th rolls around.
5: Exactly. I mean, nobody predicted the blackface stuff was going to come out. It's not like we began the campaign saying, say, well, you know, it's very interesting. They're all tied right now in public opinion. Wait wait for the blackface photos to emerge. I mean, these things come out of left field. And there may be something else that, uh, well, there will be something else that, that causes people to, it up and take notice in a way that they haven't before. And again, as we mentioned at the top, if there is more embarrassing incidents involving Trudeau, that's that could perhaps be fatal to him. But it's just, it's just as possible that uh, other unflattering things come out about other parties and other uh, other candidates. You, you know, the Liberal Party war room has been active for some months now, and you can be sure they've got some stuff on Conservatives. The problem they've got now, I think, is it might be harder for them to play. Uh, some cards involving the past of, of conservative leaders, whether it's she or someone else, given Trudeau's past, which seems to have taken potentially all the other so-called past issues off the table.
0: Right. You can hardly call somebody out for their past and call on their resignation if uh, you're uh, guilty of the same.
5: Exactly. And, it, and that's, uh, that's really shackled, I think, a big part of the liberal campa- campaign here. I think they were going to devote a lot of energy and attention into discrediting conservative candidates because of past remarks. Having said that, Andrew Shear continues to be dogged on the campaign trail, and reporters aren't letting this go, by his comments about uh, same-sex marriage from a number of years ago. And he's not apologizing for it, and he just says we've moved on. But it's interesting that that issue won't die and won't, won't be completely taken off the table yet, even though he insists that uh, that's all in the past. He doesn't want to talk about it anymore.
0: Uh, Certainly. Do you think it's different? Is it different this time around in this campaign? I mean, social media has been around for quite some time now. It's much easier for people to call up videos, to call up comments, to be able to reference something. Is that making a difference in how we stick to these issues or how issues come and they stay with us now?
5: Well, I I certainly think the, the blackface incidents have elevated it to a new level that we've never seen before. But I wonder maybe there's a watershed moment here that uh, will there be sort of a tacit agreement going forward that the past is the past, and we're going to start sticking with what's going on right now. Uh, certainly the liberals are, are arguing that with Trudeau, that this was 18 years ago, and it's hardly fair to judge him by that now. Uh, the conservatives are, you know, are trying to argue that it matters, but they do have their own glaring weakness with Shears' comments from, you know, 10 years ago. Uh, and it may be a, a, a sort of a tacit understanding of the parties that this was this new approach of vetting everyone based on something that happened 12 years ago or 15 years ago because it's sitting there on the Internet, uh, maybe that has to change and it has to be sticking more with the issues that matter right now rather than, rather than the past. I mean, maybe I say that hopefully, but uh, the, the blackface incident certainly has elevated this sort of past stuff to a level that we've never seen before and parties may not want to continue with that sort of line of uh, attack on each other.
0: All right we will uh, leave it there as we head uh, into further into the election campaign. Keith Baldry thank you so much.
2: Always a pleasure Joe.